Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of Truth, being good Bereans, receiving the Word of God with all joy, but searching the Scriptures to find out whether or not these things are so. Uh, John 3, 16 to 17, uh, or excuse me, um, First uh, Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Is profitable for reproof, for doctrine, for correction, that the man of God could be thoroughly complete, lacking in nothing for every good work God has given us. So God's word gives us everything that we need for every good work that we are given. Uh, The first question that we have today is one that was asked a few weeks ago at the end of one of our Q&As, and it was, what is modalism? So modalism is the view, and it's been around for a long time. There is classical modalism and there's modern modalism. Modern modalism is connected more to the oneness movement, the Pentecostal oneness movement that believes that Jesus is all there is to God, that it is only Jesus. But modalism, classic modalism, believes that God takes different forms or different modes, that there's there's one God, it's a singularity, and he either appears as Jesus or he appears as the Father or he appears as the Son um, or the Holy Spirit. And when he is the Holy Spirit, he is appearing as the Holy Spirit and is not the Father and the Son. And when he's the Father, he's not the Spirit and he's not the Son. And when he's the Son, he's not the Father, he's not the Spirit. The problem with modalism is that it takes away the relationship within the Godhead. So the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 uh, that Jesus humbled himself. And he came as a man, um, really surrendering to the will of the Father. So if you don't have any interaction between the Godhead, then how does Jesus submit or surrender to the will of the Father? Now, this whole idea of the Godhead and oneness or a trinity um, was fought out long ago in the Council of Nicaea. That's really what it was about. It wasn't about getting the canon of Scripture together at all. That had already been determined um, and, and really had been discovered rather than determined. But it was about how we're going to interact about the Trinity, that the Trinity really does have a Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and there's interaction between them. If modalism were true, when the Father becomes, when the Son becomes the Father, what happens to the Son? Because the Son has become human, and the Son has taken on human form. And so what happens to that form? We could say that the Father is spirit, that the Holy Spirit is spirit, but the Son is taken on flesh. So what happens to the flesh? So this has been considered to be heresy. If you are serving, following oneness theology, or modalism where you believe that God is one, uh, then you are not serving and following the Jesus that died for our sins. It's a different Jesus, which the Bible said there are going to come some teaching a different Jesus. So it is considered to be outside the preview of Christianity. It is a heresy. Now, a heresy is when someone teaches something that is so far out there that it doesn't stay within the the boundaries of Christianity. For example, if you teach that Jesus only came in the spirit and didn't come in the flesh, that is a heresy. 
And we would say that, that, that you are not a Christian. If you teach that um, salvation comes by um, joining a certain church, we would say that's heresy, like Jehovah Witnesses or, um, or Mormons. There's a lot of things that you could teach that wouldn't be heresy, which would be error. Like you've got amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism. Well, one of those is that only one of them is correct. The rest of them are error, but we wouldn't call it, we wouldn't call them a false teacher. We wouldn't call it heresy. We would call, we might call it a false teaching. So if, if amillennialism is proven to be true, then they would say if premillennialism, which I believe in, that it was a false teaching. But they wouldn't call me a false teacher for believing in premillennialism because it doesn't affect an essential that would not allow me to be a Christian. So modalism is considered to be a heresy. That's how bad it is because it, it affects the interaction of the Godhead uh, together. All right, so thank you very much for that question that was submitted a while ago. I appreciate that and appreciate you guys. Good to see you here. Uh, Psych Man has our first question today. Um, Psych Man says, um, question, we have spiritual, um, let's see, circ uh, in, in Deuteronomy 10, 17. Oh, spiritual circumcision in Deuteronomy 10, 16. Therefore, circumcision, the foreskin of your heart, okay? Then what Paul writes in Romans 2, 25 through 29, can't the same thing be said about water and spiritual baptism? Um, I'm not sure, psych man. I know we had a conversation about this the other night. Um, and I, we, going back to what we talked about, if the context is clear, that it's water baptism or some other kind of baptism, like we were all baptized into the body of Christ. Being baptized into the body of Christ would be immersed by the Spirit into the body of Christ. So that immersed, that baptism would be a different kind of baptism. But if the word baptism, if the word water baptism, or if the context isn't water baptism, isn't used, then you've got to try to determine from context whether it's spiritual or whether it is in, in water baptism. And just because it isn't in a context that says water baptism, then it doesn't mean that it's not water baptism. And you can go to the Ethiopian eunuch for this. When the Ethiopian eunuch pulls up and says, there's water, what stops me from being baptized? And he just used the word baptized, what stops me from being immersed? So later on, in Colossians 2.12, where it says that when you are baptized, you are buried with Christ and you are raised with him. Or Romans 6, when it says that all who are baptized are baptized in him, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's spiritual. It, it, it could be. I mean, you got to go back and look at it and you can, you can have whatever opinion that you want to have about whether that's spirit, whether that's water baptism. It's a possibility, but you can't say that this is the only option that there is when there's nothing in the context would say, that would say that. Um, I would argue that those two passages, Colossians 2.12 and Romans 6, where it talks about being buried with Christ, being united together um, in baptism, 
that I would say that that to me is the picture of water baptism because when you go under, because the buried and the coming up out of, let me go ahead and and, uh, bring up one of these texts. I'll show you what I'm talking about. And, um, if, if you chose to, to believe something different about it, it's fine, psych man. But um, I think here, let me go ahead and just bring this up. Uh, yeah, good. Let me see if I can do this as well. All right. So um, uh, I'll just go to one, one verse before to get the context. It says, in him we also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So that's the spiritual aspect you're talking about. Putting off the body of the sin of the flesh by circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism. So I see that as being buried under the water. You go under the water and being baptized. You also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and sin of the uncircumcision of your flesh. So it's it's obvious here that what he's talking about is the circumcision that is um, is spiritual, right? In him we are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So the context tells you that this is not regular circumcision. But when you get to the portion on baptism, buried with him, it doesn't say anything that would make you think that it's not baptism into water. But the picture of being buried and rising up. And then if I go to, if I go to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, and um, let's see, let me get to the right spot here. Um, okay, let me just start in verse, let me get here, let me start in verse, uh, let me start in verse 3. Let me just go and start in verse 1. Let's just go and take in the context. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Same picture as Colossians 2.12. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we come out of the water. And now we are raised from the dead by the glory of Father. Even so, we should walk in newness of life. For if we were united together in the likeness of his death, which now we are united in the likeness of his death. We are actually, there's actually something happening there. And this is what I always say. There's something happening there. We are identifying with Christ in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So as we, we are come up out of the water, there's something actually happening where we are now in the likeness of his resurrection. If you have the view that this is spiritual and not, and, and, and not literal baptism, I don't see a problem with that. If you want to believe that, you can. I think that the buried and the resurrection means that it is, uh, but means that it is a literal water baptism. All right, psych man. Um, but like I said, no, no problem that I see. If you want to believe that every time baptism, the context of the baptism isn't water, it's spiritual. I'm just not sure that that's really the correct way to pr- approach it. I think you got to kind of look at the text and if. If you get to the point where you think they're spiritual, you can do that. That's that's not a problem. All right. So let's see. Question. Hi, Robert. Can you explain Jesus' meaning in Matthew 18, 26 and 27? So let me go ahead and go there. 
Matthew, uh, Matthew 18, 26 and 27. So let me go ahead and put this up on the screen. Pokey. That question was from Pokey, by the way. All right. So here it says, um, let's just go back a little bit. Um, but as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with wife and children till all that he had payment had been made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay it all. Then the master and the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him his debt. Okay, so let me see what your question is, Pokey. Am I in the right spot? Matthew 18. Um, yeah, Matthew 18. Let me make sure I'm right, right here. Let me just get here. Where am I at? All right, question. Pokey, can you explain what Jesus means in Matthew 18, 26 to 27? Okay, so if I have the right spot here, um, I'm going to go ahead and come out of this first and come back. And we could um, read this entire parable. So you've got a parable here. That's what you've got. All right, Pokey? And he is teaching us, and he is teaching us about forgiveness and the importance that if we forgive, we will be forgiven. Or that a Christian that has a right relationship with God is going to forgive. And so he tells this parable. Let's go there and we'll read it. It says, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times shall a brother sin against me and I forgive them? Up to seven times? Now, Peter probably thought he was being good saying seven times. Jesus said, I do not say up to seven times, but 70 times seven. That's 490 if you're counting, which I don't think Jesus wanted us to count it out. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle his accounts, one who brought to him, uh, who owed him uh, 10,000 talents, but he was not able to pay his master and commanded that it be sold. And when his wife and children and all that he had uh, payment had been made, then the servant therefore fell down saying, Master, please have patience with me and I will pay it all. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But the servant went out and found a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, this is nothing compared to what, the, what he owed the master. And he uh, took him by the throat and said, pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Sound familiar? Exactly what he had said. But went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt, debtor's prison. So when his fellow servant saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master of all that had been done. Then his master, after he called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you begged me. Should I also not have compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And the master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly father also will do if you teach one of you, if in your heart does not forgive um, his brother, his trespass. All right. So the parable becomes pretty distinct. And that is that God doesn't want hypocrisy in the area of forgiveness. We've been forgiven a great debt. And when someone offends us, we should let it go. Bible says in Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Um, we pray in the Lord's pray, prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. 
So we're asking that our own prayers are of that our debts would be forgiven as we forgive other people. If you will not forgive, I think it's a form of hypocrisy because we've been forgiven so much. Now, some are going to argue that forgiveness does not hinge on us being willing to forgive other people, that this is more of a sign of what Christians do that Christians forgive people that offend them. And I think that when a person offends you and you let them go, because what did that guy have to do to forgive that guy? He owed him a debt. And when someone sins against you, you feel like they owe you a debt. And to let to, to forgive them is just to let them go. He had him by the neck. Just let him go and say, you don't owe me anything. I've been forgiven a great debt and I forgive you and I let it go. He could have easily have done that, but he couldn't do that. Now, we might find it really hard to not forgive or to forgive. We might find it really hard to forgive. Sometimes people come to me and go, I just can't forgive. After I do a teaching on forgiving, forgiveness, I just can't forgive. You don't know what's happened to me. And I, I understand that. I understand there's deep hurts. Nevertheless, we are to forgive. Now, if someone has offended you who is not a Christian, some deep, maybe something in your childhood or something in the past. I don't think you have to go to them and tell them, I forgive you. You just need to let them go. You say, Lord, I let it go and I want to forgive them. So you just let it go. Um, if it's a believer and you have offended them, going to them and telling them, asking them for forgiveness, or if you've refused forgiveness, going to them and saying, I now forgive you is, is really important. Okay, so that's what was meant by that pokey, all right? Um, and um, if you have a follow-up on that, then please do. So Jari has a question, follow-up on the new heaven and earth. Does God destroy the place where he currently resides? Um, since Satan fell from there, how does that work? Thanks, just like the new earth became because of Adam. Right, um, so... I don't see, I don't see that, that when he fell in heaven, that heaven fell with it. The, the heaven wasn't cursed. There's nothing in the Bible that would ever make us think that heaven was cursed like the earth was cursed. So as you go through the book, as you go through the Bible, what you're finding out is that God resides in heaven and then there's earth and we're praying that God's will would be done in heaven as it is on earth. And that what is eventually happening is that the people on earth and heaven are going to come together and be united. So the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven and is on the new heaven and the new earth. And the old heaven and the old earth fled away from the face of the Lord. And we don't take that to be the third heaven, the place where God's throne is. Um, we take that to be heaven and earth, as in the heavens that we see, the universe, the stars, the sky, fled away from his face. Um, so what about the heaven that Satan fell from? I, I don't know. I hadn't given any thought to it. Um, we do know that God now resides with us in the new Jerusalem. And so does he ever sit back on his throne in heaven again? Is there anything um, that goes there? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, Good thought, but I have absolutely no idea. Um, so Kimberly says, what do I think of the Apostles' Creed? I like the Apostles' Creed. I think it's, I think it's great. Um, 
Um, I want to, there are several versions of it, but it is the basis for what we, what are essentials. That's what we're looking at for essentials. A, B, O, I'm, I'm just going to pull it up here and see if I can get it up on the screen for you. Um, let's see. The Apostles' Creed. So, um, let's see if I can get a version of it up here. Um, we having a little bit of trouble pulling the version up. Um, I don't want to just quote it because, um, let me just take a couple more minutes here. See if I can. They'll ask, what is the origin of the Apostles' Creed? Um, ah, this Creed. I can't believe that it uh, that it just isn't pulling it up for me. All right, here we go. Okay, so this is the Apostles' Creed. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. All right, Empress Kimberly. <laughs> um, um, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, in Jesus Christ, His only Son, the Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, or ghost, born of a virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, some of the Apostles' Creed is going to put, and was resurrected, okay? I believe in the resurrection. They're going to add the resurrection to it. Now, this is the Catholic prayers and the portion of the Catholic's Apostle Creed, but the Apostle Creed is broader than just the Catholic view. Let me just take a look here and see if I can find a, um, a broader view. Um, but no, I like it. it, it the Apostle's Creed, um, as it has come down to us and then been added to over time, gives us the essentials for the Christian faith. It helps us to understand what is essential. What can I be in error about and still give the right hand of fellowship to believers? So as I said earlier, I'm not going to give the right hand of fellowship to a Mormon because what Mormons believe about Jesus is, is, is not in the essentials. Um, and and uh, so on and so forth with others. There are certain things that are outside of that preview. All right, so I like the Apostles' Creed. I think it's awesome. I think the creeds are great um, for us to be able to understand what those essentials are that we believe and what makes Christianity. And these all had to be fought out in time, and they came up with these creeds to be able to make the stand of what was important within Christianity. So we have a question from Melissa. Melissa says, Hi, Pastor. Question, what exactly is the biblical definition of gossip? Is it just talking negatively about someone else? I would say that it's more than that, Melissa. So, to gossip is to, um, gossiping is tearing someone down, it's slandering someone, um, it's making someone look bad in, in someone else's eyes. I wish I had a, I could pull up, if I had a verse that had gossip in it, then I could pull up that verse with my Strong's Concordance. Um, and um, I wish I could look up just um, the Strong's number in a different... I'm going to try, try, try to figure out a better way to do that, to be able to look up gossip. 
But if we have a reference with gossip in it, um, we can take a look at exactly what the word comes from in the Greek, at least in the Strong's Concordance, which doesn't give us a lot of information, but gives us something. Um, but it is um, the idea of tearing someone down, giving information for the purpose of tearing that person down. It's behind their back. Um, you know that oftentimes gossip will be connected with, I want to tell you this, but I don't want you to share it with anybody. Or worse yet, they'll tell you the information and then they tell you, please don't tell them that I told you that. Now, my response to that is always the same. Melissa, I, when, when someone tells me, I'm going to tell you something, but you can't tell them. I always say, then don't tell me. Now, if I'm in a counseling session that has clergy privilege, then that's a, a whole different thing. Because I'm, I'm talking to someone and I'm trying to work through whatever difficulty they're having. And that's a whole different thing. Now, they may be telling me something to tear them down. But if somebody just comes to me or if somebody tells me something that's outside of clergy privilege and says, don't tell them, I say, I didn't promise that. You, you just told me and I didn't promise it um, because I don't want to be a part of, I don't want to be a part of gossip. I don't want to be a part of something that just tears somebody down. Now, I'm not saying that in my flesh, I don't like to hear gossip. All right. I'm just saying that I don't like uh, to be a part of tearing someone down. So if you could find me a passage, Melissa, that has gossip in it, I'll take a look at the Greek word. Since you're asking for the um, biblical definition of gossip, we would go back to the Greek word. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, we have a question from Susan. Susan says, um, I described born again to layman down, uh, laying to mean lay down your life for Jesus, die, to you, to your old thoughts and actions. I was told I was adding to the gospel your thoughts. Thank you. All right, so you described being born again to mean laying down your life for Jesus, to die to your old thoughts and actions. Um, I think that that is going to be the result of the gospel rather than what the gospel would be. Um, let me, um, I'm just going to take a minute here to fix something if I can. Maybe I can't. All right. Let me, let me go ahead and pull up a passage for you here, um, Susan, and I want to show it to you. So this is 1 Corinthians 15, and this is the, the gospel that Paul received. So Paul's not saying I came up with this, but he received it and probably received this from the apostles. So here it says, um, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, Synotheses, our brother, to the church which is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace and peace to you from our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, oh, you know what? I'm not, I'm going to go out of this. I'm going to come back in it. I'm, I'm like, when does this thing start? First Corinthians. I was in the wrong, I was in chapter one. I want to be in chapter 15. Okay, here we go. So he says here, Moreover, brethren, I do declare to you the gospel. The gospel is the word good news, which I preach to you. Now, the Bible says in other places that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So, the gospel is by which we bring the information by which people get saved, which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you stand. Notice, he preached the gospel. They received it. They stand in it by which you are saved. So, the gospel is preached. You receive it, you stand it, you're saved. If you hold fast to that which I preach to you. So now he talks about continuation. You've got to continue 
in, in, in what you have done. So you can't just raise your hand and say, oh, there, I'm born again. I, I, I responded to an altar call. I've got my, my uh, ticket punched for heaven, right? Unless you believe in vain. And believing in vain would be you don't follow through with it. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. Your sins were on you, and he has removed the handwriting on the wall that was against you. And this is according to the scriptures. That is in the Old Testament. We can go to Isaiah 53 and other places, and we can see that it was foretold, and that he was buried, and he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas and the twelve, and it starts to go on to talk about those that had seen it. So there's there's also the Old Testament that talks about his body not seeing corruption, and that he will see his days after he dies, which are passages about the resurrection. So Romans chapter 10 says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in you, that Jesus is Lord, and you and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. Now let's think about that confessing with your mouth that he is Lord. And let's go back and look at your question. I described born again as laid down my life uh, to Jesus, died to your old thoughts and actions. So, if you receive him, as many as receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God. That's John 1.12. You receive him, you've got to be born again. And to be born again is to receive him, to believe in your heart, to receive him as Lord and believe in your heart. And to receive him as Lord means you're no longer living for yourself, but you're living for Christ because he's your Lord. So whatever he's going to tell you to do, you're going to do. So I don't think that your definition is that far away. I think I would, I would not be as picky with you if you were to tell me um, this is what being born again is. Lay down your life for Jesus, die to your old thoughts and actions. I would say technically that's what happens when you're saved. You die to yourself and your old thoughts and your old actions. That's, the, that's what happens when you receive Jesus. Receiving Jesus is by faith, through grace, not of works. So, I think it's maybe a little pedantic, meaning exact, right? Like they want to get exact, but I think if they want to be pedantic, they're going to be correct that this is the result of, or it's the works that follow salvation, which you receive by faith. Okay, we've been saved by grace, the grace of God. God's the one who's done it. He's given us grace, and we've been saved by his grace through our faith, not of works lest anyone should boast, for the good works he's called us into. So now we're going to do works that follow the faith that followed the grace. This is where James said, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Okay, so thank you, Susan. I uh, do appreciate that. Um, Violet Stag, Violet, Violet Stag, not Violet. I always want to call you Violet Stag. Violet Stag, good to see you. Good to have you here. Hope things are going well with you. What exactly is the new covenant compared to the old covenant? I've been studying this, but I would like some clarity. Thank you. Um, all right, well, let me just go ahead and go over a general view. This may be what you've already covered. If you have a more specific question to ask about the new covenant, then you can give it. So Jesus said when he gave communion, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. So Jesus, we went away from the Old Testament, the old covenant, and into the new covenant. The new covenant is that he died on the cross for our sins, 
and we now follow and believe him. Um, this is, uh, I think he said, this is the new covenant that I give unto you that you would love one another. And um, I'm pretty sure I'm not conflating two passages there. I might be, but I don't think I am. Um, but the new covenant is the new covenant in Christ. It's grace, that we are saved by grace. The old covenant is the law. So that's very general terms, but it is what it is. Um, and if you have more specific questions about it, then you can ask the more specific questions about what this new covenant is. But the old covenant, um, Israel had to, to, to validate the, the law, say that they would keep it. Then they didn't keep it and they were removed and then they had to give sacrifices, which were all in the law. You could keep the law even if you broke the law by giving sacrifices so that you would keep the law, but they didn't even do that. So they, broke, they even broke away from that which is, is kind of crazy. But the new covenant is the covenant of grace. We're saved by faith through grace. We walk in Christ. Um, that's the new covenant. And we take communion, which we'll be doing tonight in our church service, by the way. I'm taking communion as a sign of what the new covenant is. So if you have um, a more specific question about the new covenant, I would love to be able to, to, to look into that. All right. So Keith has a question from Sally Richards. Um, she says, I was told that Watchman Nee was a modalist. Is this true? I don't know. Um, I would love to, to, to look into it and see. Um, yeah, I don't know. So Watchman Nee is the one who wrote Authority, and a lot of people read his book for Authority. Um, I'm pretty sure that's what I'm thinking of. Um, and so I don't know if he was a modalist. I would like to look it up and find out, though. All right, so if, you, um, if anybody can find that out, Ah, then please share it. I appreciate that. Um, Kevin Blazon says, in Matthew 16, 28, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, some of you standing here today will not taste death. So did Jesus return like 30 years after his death? And so are we in the millennium reign era waiting for the thousand years to return, not the rapture? Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate that. So, when I first got saved, I started reading through the Bible starting with Matthew. I'm not quite sure why I started with Matthew, but I did. And when I got to Matthew 16, um, this really confused me. I read it, and um, let's see, Matthew 16, 28. Let's see. Um, what are we at here? Matthew 16, 28. Should I say to you, these who are standing here, yeah, will not taste tests until they see the kingdom of God. So let me just go ahead and put this on the screen here. So this really confused me. Um, assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in, the, in his kingdom. And so I'm thinking, I know all of the guys that were there had died and Jesus hadn't returned. And so I literally walked away from the Bible for a few days. I didn't know what to make of it. I thought, as uh, Bart Ehrman thought, thinks, that Jesus had not fulfilled a promise. Then I came back and started reading through it. And I want to go to the next chapter here. So the very next chapter. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Now they're seeing him in his glory. 
his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to him, talking to him. Then Peter answered and said to him, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Now, in every passage, every time in, all, in the, the Synoptic Gospels, whenever you had one of those references where he says, you're going to see me in your kingdom, then the next thing they do is they go up onto the, the Mount of Transfiguration. So I go back to Matthew 28, and this is what they saw in the Mount of Transfiguration. And certainly I say to you, there's some sitting here, this is Peter, James, and John, who shall not taste death, though they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So talking to Peter and Elijah, shining in glory, was him coming in his kingdom. So I don't know if, um, Kevin, you're thinking of the preterist view here, that the, a preterist will read that passage and say, Jesus had to come back within the lifetime of the apostles. And so this is 70 AD when Jerusalem was, was, was knocked out and, they, and a preterist will even have Jesus returning in 70 AD, and, um, which I believe is not true, which I, and, and I don't know all the difference between full preterism and partial preterism, but I believe partial preterism is an error and full preterism is a heresy. We talked about the difference between error and heresy earlier. I believe that full preterism is a heresy. Partial preterism, I believe, is an error. I don't think that Jesus returned. Um, I don't think that the book of Revelation was written before 70 AD. Um, and, I don't, uh, and I don't believe that all of Revelation was fulfilled within the... Um, within the Rome taking Jerusalem. Um, Jesus did foretell it, that they were going to be scattered and Jerusalem was going to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And now the Jews have returned to Jerusalem. And I believe we're seeing um, the fulfillment of the promises to reinstate the nation of Israel and um, coming into the last days with the nation of Israel. All right, Kevin. So thank you. If you have a follow-up, I would appreciate that. Uh, if um, I didn't answer that correctly or you would like to add to it, I appreciate that. Um, ah, so Pokey had me reading a passage that was just about forgiveness. Maybe somebody needed to hear that. So Pokey says he messed up. It was Matthew 17. And, um, you know, like I said, somebody might have needed to hear it. Uh, a lot of unforgiveness going on out there, right? Matthew 17, 26, and 27. So let me see. Um, this is, Peter said from uh, him, let's see, Peter said to him. All right, I'm going to go back a little bit on this too, and then I'm going to bring this up on there. Okay, so Matthew 17, 26 to 27. I'm going to start in 24. All right, Pokey? So um, when they had come to Capernaum, those who received temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay tax? And he said, yes. And when he came, had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said, from strangers. Jesus said, the sons are free. Nevertheless, 
we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish up uh, uh, that comes up first, and when you open its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take it and give it to them for me and you. Okay. So, Jesus is saying that lest we offend, we're going to pay taxes. And we know that when Jesus was asked whether or not he should pay taxes, that he was he said, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar, under God's the things that are God's. And the kings of this world are collecting from strangers, meaning it's the Romans in Israel collecting taxes. Obviously problematic. And so it would be easy for them to think, we shouldn't be paying taxes to Caesar. And he says, so the sons are free. So, meaning that they, as, as, as Jewish at this point, are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend. So, did the Romans have a right to ask them for that, those, those, uh, did the Romans have the right to ask them for a particular, for, for taxes? And sorry, I got distracted um, from taxes. And I would say that they, they had, they didn't have a right because they were there as occupiers, but render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, unless you offend. All right. So I, I hope that helps, Pokey. Um, exactly what's being said there. Um, that it's the the we are free part because we know that Romans and First Peter tell us that we are supposed to be under authority and pray for those who are authority because they are servants and that Jesus said to pay taxes, but it's that aspect of the, the servants are free. So we do things because we live in the world, might not necessarily be um, that we would have to do it, but we do it lest we offend, okay? So that's what I, that's what I would take from it. Uh, good passage, Pokey, I appreciate that. All right. Um, yeah. Uh, so Keith talks about has has a thing up here for um, for Creed uh, for the song Creed by Petra. Um, yeah, that is a great song. That's a great song. I could sing it, but I won't do it. All right. Um, Joe uh, has a question. Joe says, previously I asked you about women covering their hair. Yep, and you said it was more of a cultural thing of the times. First Corinthians fourteen thirty eight through thirty uh, thirty four through thirty eight says. Women should be silent in the church, for they are not permitted to speak. Be submissive, as the law also says. It is safe since both of the subject matter is cited in the New Testament and it is no longer applies since we are no longer under the law in Christ. Um, so I'm not sure. Let me go. Um, is it safe to that both the subject matter is cited in the New Testament. Okay, so let's just go back and, and deal with 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 38. So, something is going on here that Paul is making a specific statement, Joe, about women keeping silent in the church in a certain situation. So, the book of Corinthians, as I understand it, 1 Corinthians, has a letter written by them asking questions and Paul responding to the questions. And we don't have all the questions that he responded to. So, earlier in the same book, he says for women when they, is it chapter 11 when they pray? Um, 
or prophesy to cover their heads. So, they're speaking in church. But now he says that a woman keeps silent. So, whatever he means, he doesn't mean that they can't pray or prophesy. So, so whatever it is for them to keep silent. So, something is being done and said and a question is being asked that we don't have the question for. Now, I want to go there and look at the context, make sure that I have this right and, and make sure that there is nothing in the context that really helps us. So, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 14 verses 34 through 38. I'm just going to go back one verse and make sure I'm in 1 Corinthians 14. Okay, let's put this up on the screen here. It says, um, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion. Did I go to 12, 9, 14? Yep. Uh, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let women keep silent in churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law says. So, it's in the context of spiritual gifts but already Paul said, if they prophesy, let them do so with their head covered. So, whatever Paul is answering, we don't have it. This is not a general statement that women can't speak in church because Paul talks about them speaking in church in the same letter. So, whatever letter he has, whatever they're doing at this particular point in time with the gifts of the Spirit, he wants, he's answering them that the women would keep silence in the church are not permitted to speak. But we don't know what the question is, so we don't know what the women are to keep silent about and not be permitted to speak about. Um, they are obviously somehow not being submissive. They are to be submissive, as the law also says, as it went to learn something, let them ask of their husbands at home. And so, probably has something to do with that. I don't want to speculate because I don't know what it would be for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So, whatever, whatever it is that's shameful for her to speak, that she's to keep silent from. Um, we don't have it. It's not a general term because we know that they're already ready to speak. This is definitely a difficult passage, okay? So, there are difficult passages in the Bible. This is a difficult passage. Um, I don't think it's cultural because already in the same passage, we have women that are speaking, okay? Um, or did the word come originally from you? Or was it uh, only you who reached? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so he just kind of goes on giving them more of a rebuke. Um, it's definitely a difficult passage and definitely an interesting one. Joe, I appreciate that. Um, we have a question from Sally Richardson's. Um, question, I am told, introducing at a Bible school, I went to hear in the UK, a wa um, Watchman Nee and Witness Lee. There we go. Those were the two I was thinking of. Taught modalism. Can you comment, elaborate, please, Pastor Robert? Um, Sally, I, I will look into it. I don't know. So, I do know, like I said, a lot of people, especially back in the 80s, liked both of these guys for a couple of different things that they wrote. I think Watchman Nee wrote a lot of little books um, and um, Witness Nee. Um, I, I will look into it, okay? And it may be one of the first questions that we have, um, but... Uh, I do not know. I know that T.D. Jakes is a modalist. Um, Oneness Pentecostals are a more, more modern form of modalism. Um, but I don't know. And I was, you know, I was looking at if anybody was able to look that up and get a confirmation on that. 
put a word question in front of it if you do find the confirmation and put it back in. Let me know where you found it from and we'll see if we can get that information to Sally. Okay, so um, let me get through this and um, I will be able to look it up. All right, so we have a question from Renee. Renee says, um, question, um, would Satan be the first who sinned against God or was it Eve? Thank you, Pastor Robert. Um, since in Revelation, it says that, that Satan, the dragon, the serpent of old, was thrown to the earth. And so we're, it identifies the dragon, Satan, as a serpent of old. So he would have fallen first and then been in the Garden of Eden before Eve fell. Okay? How much farther before did Satan fall? We don't know. We assume a period of time before the creation of the earth, but he was already fallen when it came on the scene. Okay? So Eve fell because of her interaction with the serpent, which was the dragon of Revelation, which was Satan, the opposer, which was the devil. Okay? There are those that believe that the Satan in the Bible is not always referring to the same person, but I think because Revelation has this arch enemy, the dragon, uh, the devil, Satan, uh, the serpent of old, that it is indeed the same person. It's the arch enemy, uh, the arch enemy of God um, in the Bible, uh, Satan, the devil, uh, the one that's thrown into the, the lake of fire, um, who will be tormented forever and ever. Okay? So, um, Brendan has a question. Where are the Psalms written by David? We're all, we're all the Psalms written by David. If not, were the other authors and how come their writings were included? Um, the songs, the Psalms were, were compiled around the time of David. And I can't remember how many David wrote. It, out of the 150, it's not the majority. It's like 18 or 30. I just can't remember exactly now how many he wrote. Psalms 23 is a Psalm of David. Um, I think Psalm 119 is a Psalm of David. Um, there's Psalms of Asaph that are there. These are just other people who wrote songs. Like today, there are people who write songs. So there were in their day, those who wrote songs. Um, and I think when you read um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say that because I can't remember now. I wish I had a better memory for when I was going back and going through um, these psalms. But um, to answer your question, no, all the psalms were not written by David. The other authors were people that wrote songs around the same time or around the time of Solomon and David's reign, and they were compiled together in the book of Psalms. Okay? And I don't know how many years the book of Psalms um, covered over a period of time. But they were all not written by David. David wrote a few of them. Thanks, Brandon. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Stephen and Katie. Let me go ahead and clear Brandon off here. All right, Stephen and Katie. Stephen and Katie say, I watched a video claiming God is immoral. Okay, I've heard that. The evidence used was the story of Job. They claim God did all bad things to him simply because the devil said to do it, thus making God immoral. Here's what's really funny about the immoral, the, the immoral God argument from Job. Now, I've heard this. It's not only from the book of Job. They go through the Old Testament and they look at things God did and they say that that was evil. That was wrong for God to do. 
and they try to, um, they attack God's character by certain events in the Old Testament. What's funny about the book of Job, that they would do this here, is that God basically takes Job at the end of the book and says, now I'm going to set you down. I'm going to ask you questions. Where were you when I created the earth? Do you remember Leviathan? And he asked him a bunch of questions that Job can't answer. Job was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But Job had thought he had all the answers for why God would do what he was doing for him. He wanted to answer God. And so God was basically saying I, that he does things for his own ways. My ways are as high above your ways as the heavens are above the earth, the Bible says. And so God doesn't do things the way we do them. God's not a man that he should lie. He's not, he's not like us. He doesn't do it. So God would not be immoral for doing what he did to Job any more than he was immoral for allowing Jesus to suffer on the cross for the sins of mankind or for allowing me to go through a difficulty or a trial for my good. God had his purposes in what he did to Job, and we don't know what those purposes are. Um, a doctor, he knows what he's doing, right? And so he looks at an x-ray and says, we're gonna have to break your wrist and reset it. That's the only way that your wrist will work properly. And so he breaks the wrist. Now, if he doesn't give us the information and just says, I gotta break your wrist. Why? I just gotta do it. I gotta break your wrist. Then we could might say, well, he's immoral. Because look, you just can't go breaking people's wrists. But we know the backstory. So we know the doctor's doing something that's gonna be painful for something that is gonna be better. And so God is doing something and some things in our lives that are painful, but it doesn't make God immoral for what he does. Like I said, this is dealing with the very issue of the book of Job, so it's funny. And on top of that, uh, I would just like to know what exactly is um, this guy's, what is his position? Is he an atheist? Is he an agnostic? Where does he come up with moral and immoral? Where does he get this idea of moral and immoral? Because it's God that gives us the parameters of morality in the first place. So it is really funny that he would use that particular uh, verse to say, or that particular book to say that God was immoral, all right? Um, and so, no, God does what God does for his purposes, and um, God's ways are not our ways. And, and like a doctor who does things that are going to hurt people in order to heal them, so God does things in our lives that are going to make us better. And, or for other people, who knows? Who knows all the reasons why God did with Job the things that he did? All right, so we have a question from Matt Grossman. Matt Grossman says, question, why would people still sin during the millennium period? Um, thanks, Matt. I appreciate that. Uh, because they still have a sin nature. So remember, Jesus returns to the earth, strikes the armies that are around Jerusalem with the sword that comes out of his mouth, kills them, destroys the armies, but there are still people living on the earth. There are children. There are people that weren't part of the battle they still are alive on the earth. And he rules with a rod of iron. Now, how many there were, we don't know. There was enough to make a large army to come in the battle of Armageddon. So the other people that were alive on the earth, also Israel's alive on the earth. Now, these people are not resurrected. They're not changed. They are alive on the earth. And Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom, establishes that kingdom on the earth. And Sorry, and establishes kingdom on the earth. And so these people continue to live. So think about it, Matt. They have a sin nature. They've never had it changed. 
So Jesus now rules and reigns over people with a sin nature, rules with a rod of iron, and gives them a perfect environment. Then when Satan is released, they rebel against him, revealing that even a perfect environment can't change what's in man's heart. All right? So, um, the people have not been changed. They still have a sin nature when Jesus returns to set it up. Okay? So, I appreciate that, Matt. Uh, we have a question from, uh, from uh, let's see. Oh, I'm sorry, Vincent. Um... All right, so here we have a question from Vincent, and really tragic, Vincent, I'm so sorry that you've had to go through this. My son took his own life yesterday. To the best of my knowledge, he was not saved. Is there any chance that he might spend eternity apart from God? Was not saved. Um, it's, just, it's just a heartbreaking thing, Vincent. Um, if he wasn't saved, then he will spend eternity apart from God. If um, we don't know what happens in the last moments of someone's life, we would, I don't know, could somebody be so distraught they take their lives, then give their lives to Christ before they take their lives? I think it's an outside chance, but maybe. And maybe that's some hope you could hang on to. My father died when he was 38 years old of Lou Gehrig's disease. He took me to church. He believed in God, but he believed that it was more like the existence of God that he believed in, like the Catholic Church. Didn't really teach about being born again, or didn't believe in, you know, didn't, never talked about being born again. And I would walk by his door, and I would see him staring up at the ceiling. Later on, when I got saved and began to live for Christ, I thought, you know, there's some hope that I will see my father again, because maybe while he was staring up at the ceiling, he made things right. Um, Vincent, I just want to be honest with you. If he died unsaved, he's, he's going to live his life apart from God. And that's tragic and sad. Um, and I'm so sorry for what you're going through. I do think that there's a chance that he could have made things right with him, but probably an outside chance, right? And um, may the God of all comfort comfort you in what you're going through, Vincent. So sorry to hear that. All right. Um, let's go ahead and take, um, we have a follow-up, uh, from Violet Stag. Violet Stag says, follow-up, are there any covenant laws that we must follow, or is that lifting a burden on ourselves? Any, um, old covenant laws that we must follow? No, we are not under the law, so the law would be the covenant. We are not under the law. Um, I we fulfill the law and the prophets by loving God and loving one another. We don't have to keep the court, uh, the we don't have to keep the um, um, kosher laws. We don't have to keep the ceremonial laws. We keep the moral laws because we walk in love. We love God, so we're going to keep the first four of the Ten Commandments, or at least the first three, and then we we walk in love towards other people, so the next six we follow. The only one is remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy, which God gave us for rest, and that is, com that is completed in Christ. 
So there are not any of the old covenant laws that we have to follow. And there are all kinds of passages that tell us that we are not under the law, that we are free from the law. Um, let's see if I can find this here. All right, I don't see it right away. Right, right away. I have a, um, <clears throat> I have a, a note. Let's see if I can find it here. I have a note that has a bunch of verses on it about being free from the law, and I can't find it right away. I wish these were laid out differently. Um, let's see, today, previous seven days, so it was before that, previous 30 days. Um, yeah. All right. Yep, I, I, don't, I don't see it here. But it says in Galatians, um, if we are led by the Spirit, we are not under the law. It says in Galatians 3 that the, the law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. And once we come to Christ, we no longer need to tutor. So tithing, we don't have to do. Um, it's not reiterated in the New Testament. Um, Sabbath, we don't have to do. Not reiterated in the New Testament. And in fact, it says in Romans 14 that we each need to be fully convinced in our own mind as to what day we worship and serve God on. One chooses one day, another all days alike. And so we are most definitely not under the law. And by the sake, I would just say, be careful not to let anybody put you under uh, the law. All right? So um, thank you guys for your questions today. Um, I appreciate it and um, hope that I was helpful. Um, sometimes in our Q&As, I feel like on all the questions, not really helpful. I mean, being um, if you can be asked a question, take time to look it up and then come back and answer it, you can answer it much more thorough, just kind of refreshing yourself on it. Um, but there's certain things just asking off the top of the head. I apologize for that, but I do appreciate you guys. Uh, we have a service in about an hour and we're gonna be talking about getting hell right. Looking at the passages in the Bible that talk about hell. One of the things that bothers me when I watch teachings on hell, not that I disagree with the positions, but a lot of times the statements are just made and they don't go looking at passages that actually talk about it. And they don't talk about them or look at them or talk about passages that might be in a different position. So I'm going to talk about um, some different positions um, and get familiar with the debate that is around today on whether or not the soul of an individual is eternal um, conditional immortality is what it's called, that we are only immortal because we give our lives to Christ. I'm going to be talking about that. We just kind of want to get familiar with it and consider the things in hell, because this is an area that people will say, I can't follow a God who's going to torture people in hell. And I'll be discussing that in our study tonight. Okay, so in about an hour, we'll have our service. I look forward to seeing you in there. We'll take your questions later on about hell. You can ask your questions later on um, in this q and I'm going to let people at church know, too, that we're here at the Q&A. And if they have questions, uh, they can do that. All right? So I appreciate it. And um, stay close to Jesus. Vincent, we're, I'm going to pray for you. In fact, I want to close out by praying for you. Father, I lift up Vincent to you, and I pray for him. I pray that you would be there as one who would comfort him now in the midst of all of this. You are a God who is the God of all comfort. And um, Lord, I just pray you'd be there with him and his family now as they go through this very difficult time. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Love you. I am out. We will see you, um, let's see, Saturday, uh, Lord willing. All right. God bless you guys.